This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the everything went black podcast welcome brian strong to the show our friendship has spanned three decades we played music together toward the country toward europe back in the early 90s and we have been reunited in the begotten sons project so brian and i reminisce about the old days we talk about how easy it was to make these four songs and uh what the future holds so after you listen to this show, I urge you all to check out the other shows of the podcasting Illuminati, the horsemen of the podcasting apocalypse. Starting the week off, we have Brandon Legion bringing you Horror Wolf 666. Tuesday, the finest metal podcast on the internet into the necrosphere with Jackie Smith. Wednesday, everything went black. I return on Thursday with Jeff Kashid and Mike Scandato for Necromaniacs. Over the weekend on Sunday, Carl Hikara brings you Soul Knox and Out in the Shadows, Iblis Manifestations, brought to you by Cheyenne of Tribax. And he has his own agenda, his own schedule. You just have to pay attention to when new episodes arise. If you want to support the show, I urge you all to check out the Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You can contribute to the future of the show. You get access to bonus content for $5 a month. You get the bonus content plus early access to regular stream episodes. And for $25 a month, you can become a sponsor. Onward to the show. But what some people probably don't know or listen to this is that you and I were in a band like, what, like 30 years ago at this point, right? Well, it was 1994 to 96. A lot of people don't know that Otis was a very brief uh, experience for everybody, you know? It's funny that back then it seems like two years. Didn't it seem like the band existed for like 10 years or something like that? Well, we did a lot, uh, you know, there was a lot of kind of gearing up to it. So it was cl probably closer to, to three years because we weren't like a lot of people where it's like, hey, let's be a band and then play a show next week. You know, we spent a lot of time getting it together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, is that stuff, can you find any of that material anywhere? Like, I've never really looked online or, like, to see if it's in Spotify. Has any, you know, is that stuff available anywhere? It's on YouTube. So I can send you my uh, YouTube page link, and you can share it as part of uh, this if you'd like to. But, um, 
Yeah, most of the um, records and live on on the radio performances are available on YouTube. Yeah, it actually, took a I while to get there, you know. Over the pandemic, um, you know, I ended, you know, obviously everyone had a lot of time on their hands, you know, and uh, I I bought a DAT machine because I used to have like a, some portable one that you know pretty much stopped working, you know, years ago. So I invested in this like Tascam, like studio DAT player, you know, and I had like tons of DATs, you know, and a lot of all that, all those live sessions, I archived all that stuff too. So I have like, oh, nice. Yeah. Wave files and and MP3 files of all those sessions. Just so, you know, the DAT, that tape goes, it degrades just like any other audio format, you know, so now I have it all digitized. Yeah, I mean, there was a, you know, Otis goes back. We had a single at one point, you know what I mean? Yeah, so no, totally. We, we were having stuff released on, on cassette at one point. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, interesting to see how things evolved. Yeah, some of those, um, the radio shows are probably some of my favorite recordings, actually, because I feel like that really captured what the band sounded like live as opposed to the records. The records, I got to be honest, even at the time, I was never really happy with any of the recordings we made. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of deal with what you have access to. And, you know, none of us had any money or, you know, the wherewithal to put it together. You know, I mean, that first record was like $700 it cost to make, you know, something <laughs> like that. You know? Yeah, it's, it's insane at the lanes in, uh, in yeah. Austin, which... yeah long ago that that place disappeared like long ago i imagine well just like everything you know but um but yeah no i mean it's a you know we had a i don't know if you remember but you had an ad in the phoenix for you know drummer wanted when you came back from bellingham with those couple of guys i can't remember their names oh yeah uh, yeah yeah, totally that's right (laughs) we did a we did a bit of jamming there you know, we tried to put that together. Then those guys took off. And then you called me up and said, hey, Al B uh, from SSD is looking to put something together. Oh, man. Yeah. Do you want to go out and jam with him? You know, and we had a nice day with him and his wife was there and they were super nice. But, uh, you know, so, you know, you'd reach out periodically and then it would be like, hey, I found this singer. And then Josh showed up one day to a practice and I'm like, how long have you been playing bass? And he's like, I don't play bass. But that, you know, that was over... the best part. About <laughs> like we were auditioning all these bass players. And I know at one, some dude showed up from some band and like no one was right. And then I remember Josh just like hanging out with, cause him and Kevin were, um, were living together. You know, they, they were living in a house together. And he just is there to hang out and he just, he's like, I'm not, I don't play anything. (laughs) But I'm like, Oh, that's a shame. Cause you know, it's a good fit. And then, you know, I went back and I was playing in the band mother for a while because I was living with those guys or, you know, maybe I was just moving in with them. And then you, you know, you were persistent. You kept hitting me up like, Hey, do you know anybody? And then, you know, we started doing it. So you know, all's well that ends well, I guess. Yeah, we had a bunch of different guys that we tried to um, audition as well. We were playing with someone for a while, and that's a whole other story. Nice guy, but some darkness crept into his um, 
interactions with us and uh i'll i'll leave it at that and we had to stop playing with him but uh yeah <laughs> well that's the but, hardest part right you know so you know i took a long hiatus from doing music and when i finally decided to do music again i was like yeah i'm just gonna do my own project where i play everything you know and that's the the roman letters ep that just came out in june yeah uh but you know the the drive to you know put together a group of people and you know maintain it over the weeks you know it's not that i'm i'm too old for it but in a lot of ways i just don't have the patience or energy for it so i think i think i mentioned to you like hey i'm doing this thing and then that's when you were like hey i'm i'm looking to do something similar where you know i'm playing most of the instruments etc yeah. And, you know, and, and one of the things I always admired about you and, and was the fact that you actually were proficient on all these other instruments, like the Roman numerals thing. Like you did everything on that, except for some Roman that. letters. Rome, sorry, Roman letters. That's yeah. all right. There's a Roman numerals. I think the guys from Season to Risk have okay. a, a, a side project named Roman numerals. But in any event, I'm not really proficient, you know, but I think every drummer that, um, plays a little guitar kind of you know wonders like can i do it you know and if i could you know how would it come together in the studio and you start mapping out how you're going to do all the parts and stuff i didn't really have a master plan unfortunately you know you know it's funny being a drummer because that that is the most i mean not pretty maybe you don't see it this way but i see it this way because i can't play drums i don't have the coordination for it but that really is like the hardest instrument in all of the pieces that combine to form a band. You know what I mean? Becoming decent at drums is to me, seems like such like an impossible feat. Cause I, I actually tried playing drums like a long time ago and I just sucked at it so bad. And, um, guitar, bass, synths, like anything like that, singing even is like, I, I think, I feel like it takes a fraction of the intention to get good at that as it does to drumming, you know, especially like, you know, you can play multiple styles too, you know what I mean? And it's hard, you know, but that's a one up though. It's like you, if you want to do your own project and you play drums, the other stuff kind of falls into place and it's definitely um, less challenging, I think, to put something cohesive together if you play drums to start. Oh yeah. I mean, if I didn't have the help of the engineers and technology you know, it certainly wouldn't have sounded as, as good, you know, and if I didn't start playing drums young, I probably wouldn't have had the, the energy to do it, you know, but, um, you know, I grew up with a lot of instruments around the house, you know, I think, you know, my stepfather was a musician, my mom was yeah. a singer, so, you know, I had like a full PA and a full band set up in my basement in high school era, so that was a real benefit, you know. There's a cat here, so oh, that's, that's what that right. sounded. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Yeah, but uh, you know, the thing with you, it was really organic. You know, uh, you know, I I kind of when I was filming you guys in in Providence the, at the Tomb Show. You know, you mentioned this thing, and I was like, "Yeah, I I would love to do that." And then, you know, it was just easy. And I think 
that that's kind of the route, you know, that path, you know, the, the path of least resistance, those projects to come together, you know, more easily. So, you know, hey, do you want to do it? Yeah, sure. You know, send me some of the, the demos and, and let's just pick a day, you know. Yeah, it came but, together pretty quickly too. And, and actually it was kind of a trip just seeing you actually at Providence because that was that was literally the first show. Well, that's not true, actually. Um, we played one show at the very end of the pan well, when the quote unquote end of the pandemic, when I still had just recovered from COVID. We played one show, but that Providence show was like the first tour date that we'd done since before the pandemic so it'd been like three years or something like that or two and a half years before we since we'd actually been on the road so the whole getting in a van loading equipment driving however many hours loading into a club it was such like a unusual feeling at the time and um because it's something you know something that i was you know hundreds of shows a year and then nothing and then coming back and suddenly you're supposed to perform again in this kind of setting you know in some other city that you don't live in yeah hoping a random guy that you knew since 93 shows up <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was a total trip man but it was awesome and i was so happy to see you man because we hadn't seen each other in, in a few years at that point yeah absolutely but i mean the last we time i saw you was it was in europe it was in switzerland i think yeah what was um that was when you had the the trio version of of the group right yeah, and that, and that was quite a while ago, too. Like, we, we've been a four-piece since, like, 2015, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was good. I can't even remember what club you uh, you played, to be honest with you. But, the you know, the beauty thing of, of living over there when I was in Switzerland was, you know, even the bigger bands, like, I'm kind of friends with JD from Black Label Society and you know, you'd actually, they don't know anybody over there. So you'd actually have time to go out and have, have a meal and hang out on the side of the stage and, you know, say a quick hello to Zach Wild and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, in New York, New Jersey, you know, Massachusetts, you'd never get that opportunity really, you know? Yeah, totally. You know, it's like I was mentioning before, we're heading out to go check out Cannibal Corpse and uh, Mayhem tonight. And, uh, you know, I was texting with Eric Rutan about meeting up and you know, I haven't seen him in a few years, too. So but, you know, tonight's one of those nights. It's like a show's out in Brooklyn. It's like probably going to be a lot of people from, the, you know, their press op operation. And it might be hard to catch up, you know what I mean? But I'm hoping to catch, you know, get a couple minutes to hang out and talk and just catch up with Eric, too. Yeah, Absolutely. My brother was a, a huge uh, fan of theirs, you know, way back and, you know, whenever they started, whatever it was, the late 80s or the early 90s, um, you know, he was usually the guy that kind of turned me on to the more extreme stuff. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I always, you know, I always had my, uh, you know, pop sensibilities or, you know, kind of grew up on hair metal or whatever um you know that's just kind of the life in new jersey you know the the bon jovi life you know bon jovi life <laughs> i seriously i had a buddy that would hang out outside of bon jovi's house and he would like you know try and pick up chicks that were also hanging out at bon jovi's house and you know just listen to cassettes of bon jovi i mean that was we there wasn't much to do you know 
little fun fact here about uh, Bon Jovi is, uh, all right, now, Garden State Parkway, okay, heading towards, heading south. Yeah, they've got a rest area. Yep. There used to be the Cheese. Right. It used to be the Cheesequake rest stop. Yep. Now it's the John Bon Jovi uh, Memorial, or not Memorial, but the John Bon Jovi, you know, rest area. Isn't that funny? Yeah. No, I've I've been uh, <laughs> I've been there since it's. I think I've gone to the the rest area, but yeah, I mean, we had our you know hometown heroes, and you know, of course, Bruce was a big picture in my life just because my stepfather played in his high school band, the Castiles. And, you know, he was always uber obsessed with Bruce, you know, due to that connection. Um, somewhere I'm kind I of a, I'm kind of a regular at the uh, the Bon Jovi rest area, actually, because uh, <laughs> our, our practice space is like a few exits. It's in Keyport. So that's like, you know, just past that rest stop. And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. and I, I live in Jersey City right now. So it's a little bit of a hike for me to get to practice. But that's like a nice, uh, you know, stop off point to get coffee or go to the bathroom or whatever, like, you know, on, on the way back and forth. So I'm, I'm a regular at the Bon Jovi rest area. Otis was big on rest areas. We, <laughs> you know, whenever we traveled, we seem to stop way more often than was actually necessary, you know, well, for, <laughs> for gas purposes, you know, it, it's funny. Like this is, this is really funny. I try to talk to like some of the like dudes and bands that are a little bit younger that back in the nineties, the travel world was way different than it is now, as far as like being out on the road, like the culture of the rest stops and just that road world is a way different than it is now. Now with social media and like mobile technology, you're not as cut off from things as you were back in the nineties when you and I were first going out on tour. Like oh, yeah. when we first, when we first started touring back then, you really were in a different world. Like you, you didn't even barely talk to anyone back home. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had a paper map and there was not a lot of planning as far as, you know, is this distance doable? Because you're not kind of, you know, you're not plotting it out on Google Maps. So it's like we'd finish a gig and then drive 10 hours or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, sometimes even cutting it close up until soundcheck or what have you, you know. Well, that Uh, that very first tour we did, that was like all the way out west to because I had. I mean, it was really kind of like done booked by ourselves by ourselves completely independently and set up around like a, a show in Bellingham and Seattle because I knew people out there. Yeah. And Olympia also. Yeah. And Olympia. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was just like this completely, it was a, a total chaotic mess of poor planning and like, barely having enough time to make some of these these uh you know like not really like you were saying planning out the mileage of the time or oh it's the greatest time of our lives though at the same time you know yeah i mean i think the second week of that trip was like you know seattle area you know the beginning of the week chicago midweek (laughs) and then new jersey saturday (laughs) so it was like the whole country for three shows or something on the way back but yeah, it was, you know, it was like brilliant, you know, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it's like, that's what you do back then. You know, you don't like, that's, you know, you're just learning how to do all these things. And, you know, you, you there was that book, your own fucking life, like zine that came out and oh yeah, 
pretty much just send cassettes to addresses and call people on the phone and hope you catch them or hope that you can leave a voicemail and have them get back to you. You know, there was no way to even know that, like, it was like throwing a message in a bottle, like out into the ocean, you know, and hoping for the best, really. Yeah, no, it was good. I On the way out, I, I wrote this in a, in my book. I put my shoes on on a Monday and I didn't take them off until like a Friday or something, you know. And, you know, we didn't, uh, you know, plan for pillows or sleeping bags or anything like that. Like nobody brought anything sleeping related. So it was just like four dudes, like, you know, laying on uneven equipment in a, in a van with no blankets or anything. But, well, the, uh, the, the SVT, the uh, speaker cabinet was like, that was like the prime spot because that one actually was flat. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty rough, but eventually like we built, built the loft and, you know, made, you know, got some sleeping bags and then did a little planning, but I was good for like, you know, random people would be like, Hey, if it comes down to it, you can stay with us. And I'd be like, well, it's come down to it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like immediately. And a lot of people were like surprised and they're like, Oh, I thought there was going to be some consultation with some other people. And it's like, no, you're the first to offer. It's going to happen. Now. <laughs> like, you, really, you really get to test people's hospitality, you know, whether or not they actually get what they're saying to you back then, you know? Yeah. No, it was some people we turned down because it was too much and you could tell it was going to be too much of a party or, you know, it was going to be too gross of a house or whatever, you know, and sometimes we went with it anyway, you know, but uh, I mean, that's what being young is all about. I couldn't do that now. I mean, back in those days, like if I had like a closet to put my head in. Like I'd lay down with my head in a closet and I'd be like, all right, I have some privacy, you know, <laughs> probably the most out of that whole first tour, the most notable show, I think was the Grand Rapids, Michigan show that I don't know if you remember that one at all. Oh yeah, absolutely. The guy that was eating the grass and everything. Yeah, dude, that was like one of the, I, you know, some, I, this is the first time I've ever been to some of these places. You know what I mean? Like I never thought about Grand Rapids. It was like, the, we played there because someone got back to me about playing there. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like not like a goal of mine to play in Grand Rapids. <laughs> it was like, okay, someone got back to us and it's only like a six hour drive from like the previous city, you know? And uh, yeah, there was one of the, it, it was almost like someone had dropped a neutron bomb and killed everyone and left the building standing when we got there. Oh yeah. It just, just, I remember it being just desolate and empty. And then we ran into this like Charles Manson, like hippie guy with green teeth because he'd been eating a diet of wheatgrass. Yeah, he only ate grass that he grew himself, and his <laughs> his his whole shit was green, you know. Yeah, but uh, there's a lot of characters. I mean, there'd be like a random uh, chick that had like a whole house to herself, but she only had stuff in the garage. I don't oh, know yeah. if you remember that. Like the entire house that. was empty, and her bedroom was in the garage, and she's like, "I just like to open the door in the morning." <laughs> and I'm like, "How do you argue with that?" You know. It's a, that it does sound like a nice way to wake up, but it's just a bizarre way to live, you know. It was funny. We played with a band that night called Product. I don't know if you remember them. Um, not really. Oh, I yeah, just I listened- actually do. Yeah, I do remember them. I just listened to their demo like last week, man. Like I found it in a cassette pile, 
and I was like, oh yeah, I remember these guys. That's why I think the Grand Rapids Michigan night was like in my so much in the forefront of my head right now. Yeah, there were a, a lot of good bands, a lot of forgettable ones. You know, we yeah, used to yeah. go out to Rochester quite a bit, and you know, Bill from Mastodon would be there all the time because that was, you know, Kevo's home turf, and whether it was Butter Slacks or Lethargy or, you know, whatever bands he was in, we would do some shows here and there. But, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be like, hey, let's just d go drive 10 hours for a show, you know? Yeah, no, totally. We were just kind of up for it, you know? The um, It, it was actually very cool to have, been, to have played with Lethargy just that one time, really, because, like, that's a band that's kind of like, you know, based on the success of Mastodon and, you know, Bill and Braun, you know, their pro their profile in the music world, Lethargy has become a bit of a, um, you know, kind of like a legendary band. So it's really cool to have been able to play with them and see them perform live. And, you know, it's quite mind blowing music musicians in that band, really. Yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of times you don't give things, you know, kind of the, the credence that it deserves you know, in, in the beginning. Right. But, um, you kind of look back and go like, Oh, that was, you know, that guy. Like, I don't know if you remember, um, that band Paul polyglot. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Maine. Well, that's yep. Ian McFarland who yeah. did, you know, the hardcore documentaries. He was in blood for blood and stuff. So it was like, Oh, that was just some kid that was coming to Otis shows. You yeah know, totally it was really enthusiastic and you're like oh okay he's doing really well for himself you know well i mean also remember loga you know from maine right of course aaron harris played in loga and i think we played with he was still in high school when we met that dude like they were we little kids in, yeah they were kids they're little kids like we played in uh, old town maine at that mr heavy's like spot yeah yeah and this band was playing of like high school kids. <laughs> it was like, oh, they were great. You know, they're like this Melvin's like helmet kind of thing. And uh, we became, you know, just became friends with those guys. And Aaron Harris, who, you know, has gone on to be in uh, ISIS for many years. And um, now he's got a successful uh, composing career. And he does yeah. work some really high profile films now. Yeah. So does yeah. John Swihart, who uh, was in... Um decon and he was also in that band grip that uh recorded or not recorded but rehearsed across the street from you guys yeah when you lived on uh hooker street there oh yeah um, that was yeah oh yeah that's right yeah that's right yeah he's about. doing uh all kinds of big time uh music uh film music music for tv etc yeah, everyone's successful except for me and you, man. It seems <laughs> well, you know, I it's weird. I, I got to a certain point and it's like you feel like you're kind of beating your head against the wall and you know, you have opportunities and and they fall through, or you know, like I don't know, it's 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 weird. It was it's hard to get that excitement uh going. So that's the beautiful thing about you know, the project that I just put out and, and this one is, you know, it's like low risk, you know, it's all fun. It's all for the music. Like I'm not depending on any of this stuff for, you know, 
my well-being or my finances or anything like that, you know. And I think when you're, you know, chasing the dream, uh, it's it's a weird mix that the creativity and hey, how do how am I going to make a life of this, you know? Yeah, dude, hundred percent. Because like I'm not saying that, you know, I've ever been successful financially oh you're definitely successful tombs is a very successful band you know but you know you don't measure that success no but in financial terms you know no but like the point i was trying to make though and and this is like uh you know like when we were on like metal blade um records you know in the back of my mind there is this whole idea about the business side of things too that were running diametrically opposite to my creativity i think during that period and uh because part of me is like all right now you know we're in this record label there's like the black dahlia murder like behemoth cannibal corpse like all these big players in extreme music were you know we're in the same realm as them at least on paper and in the in my mind i'm like like fuck man should we do anything different you know should we try to like you know make our music something that you know would would be more palatable to some you know kid on tiktok or something like that you know um it was like i obviously i didn't didn't i obviously i threw those ideas out in the garbage because you know i that's not i would feel very uncomfortable having done that but there's always that idea of like once once it becomes more of like a business you know once it becomes like people are relying on you to sell product to you know there's like a bottom line associated with it. These thoughts creep into your mind, you know, and it's like, it's kind of like the, you know, detrimental to your creativity. You know, that's why a lot of these bands, like they're great bands, but sometimes they make the same record over and over again, because this one sold the last time we were able to get this much sound scan or this much like streams on all the, you know, channels. So we're not going to stray too far away from that. You know, and I've never wanted to live that life. I always wanted to like push, things and have new stuff come out you know that's different you know and it's like yeah it's just like a weird i don't think like creative like creative outlets and and finance mix ever really you know well it's a you know it's an interesting dance i mean when otis had the most you know heat if you want to call it that you know there would be like a you know a lunch with hey you know this is the guy I don't know if you remember, we had lunch with this guy from uh, some company and, you know, he was managing Fishbone and Robbie yeah. Robertson and all these people. And I'm like, so why are we here? And, you know, he, <laughs> I, you know, I was kind of a dick. We were always kind of dicks to people, like kind of put them on their back feet a little bit during the, during the conversation. But, you know, he's like, well, there's really nothing I can do, but, you know, when things get to a point, you know, if you need a manager and it's like, so, you know, it's almost like today with like the kind of influencer mentality, it's like, if you can make yourself famous, we can make you famous. Yeah. Yeah, totally. There were a lot of people, you know, when we were being booked by premier and opening for the Ramones and, you know, doing some other things that people were like, well, I'm at the ready if if things go well. And it's like, well, can't you help us get <laughs> things to go well? Or you just, you know, they just want to be there with the fishing net. You know, they don't want to do the fishing. They want to be the guy on the boat that's like holding the net, you know, and uh, get their piece of it, you know. 
that was like a very interesting year i thought like i you know looking back you know we both touched on the fact that it, feel, it felt like the band existed way longer than it did but like it was like a quick you know we had like a year of getting ready you know of kind of like writing not really being a band like having different you know members and kind of coming to a, a, an actual lineup and then we had like a two-year period of releasing two records and doing all this touring you know touring europe with fetus and that whole thing you know on a, yeah. on a nightliner was fun and all that and then but yeah it's like it was the early it was the what mid early 90s at that point still 93 94 95 yeah it was 96 by the time we were in europe you know okay so in 94 95 96 yeah. yeah okay so that was like kind of the tail end of like that explosion of early 90s alternative music becoming marketable you know what i mean well, if you remember, Bark Market was on that tour and Dave Sardi had, you know, even then a pretty successful engineering career. Yes. And, you know, he always made fun of us for being on the tour bus because he was still in a van. Yeah. And then like he spent one night on the bus when he was really <laughs> drunk and he's like, I want to see what bus life is like. And he's like, you guys suck. You know, like he was just always kind of digging at us that like we, you know, maybe we skipped a step or whatever, but like, that's how you get on the tours. Like that, the, that's the thing that people don't even realize is, you know, our European deal, the, you know, money that came with tour support is what paid for that bus. And that's the reason why fetus had us on the tour in the first place. Yeah, you totally. Know, the yeah. Opening band helps pay for the tour, you know? Yeah. And like we, we look, instead of having a crew, they had us to load the equipment, if you remember. I don't know if you remember all that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it was, you know, there was a lot of sharing gear. So it was like, well, you guys do, you know, the first line check. So it makes sense that you load stuff in or whatever. Yeah, I, I was like that just mentality. happy to be there, you know. But, you know, you'd run into people that had been in the business longer, like uh, Rock, uh, you know, the drummer. Rock Mark Sutton. Market. Yep. Yeah. Well, no, Rock was the, Rock Sutton was the in Fetus. Wasn't there oh, another? Right. The, right. Yeah. The drummer was named Rock also. Like, what are the odds of two guys <laughs> naming Brock and then the same tour? I think I'll have to look it up. Apologies to him if I'm getting his name wrong. But uh I was walking with him in Germany one time and uh, I'm like, oh, there's your group. And I'm like, hey, and he's like, no, no, no. And I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, you're out here trying to get some alone time. You don't want to be with all your people, you know. And I was just <laughs> thinking, like, hey, it's fun. We're all here. He's like, no. <laughs> you know, he, you know, he had he had lived it longer. He had experienced it, you know. But, you know, even Bark Market at that point they were like on american records i think yeah and uh so they were on like they had some heat behind them too yeah you know so they were like i think they'd even been on a long tour before that european tour we did together like they'd been like on some big you know tour in the states or something and went directly to europe so they went to japan that year too i think yeah yeah so it, it was just like such an interesting period of for like it really did there really was a sense that like you can be playing in front of five people one night and then three months later you could be in front of like 5,000 people. You know what I mean? Yeah. If well, you were was, lucky. 
there was one night, I don't know if you remember, I was, like got into a bit of an argument with Jim Thurwell. And, uh, you know, I was trying to talk to him about reality. And he's like, you've got your reality. I've got mine. And I'm like, well, this guy clearly has crossed over into rock stardom because he's got his own reality, you know. And it was after that that tour that he got clean, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was actually um you know not not to like you know cast dirt here but I think that was kind of the end of the line for him with with uh for that because yeah he that that tour that band was like from the from day 1 to the end you can see the crumbling of the whole thing you know what I'm trying to say Well you know William Tucker uh who was in ministry and pig face yeah. and playing with fetus he killed himself a few years after that tour you know yeah i i I remember reading about that and being like really bummed out because he he didn't even finish that tour if you remember no he left he had a not to get into his whole thing but he had a lot of pain and he was uh he had to get some medical attention you know yeah but and he was one of the guys that i thought i actually spoke to him quite a bit on when the part i mean he was there for a few weeks but and oh he he was was great yeah, real nice guy, like quiet, you know. He was like sober on that tour too. Ah, so like, not entirely. Not entirely. Not entirely, though, right? yeah. Not entirely, but, but uh, you know, like he, you know, Dave Sardi used to give him side eyes cuz, you know, he'd come walking through and he's got his pancake makeup on and stuff and you know, Dave would look at him like, what the fuck are you doing? But like, that's, you know, that's the show, right? You yeah, know? totally. It's like the Dick Clark thing, you know, like if you want to look like the crowd, then you're going to be in the crowd, you know? That's true. Yeah. But yeah, that was just like a, you know, we obviously whatever quality characteristic that was needed to go from playing in basements and small clubs to like, you know, rock stardom in the early 90s was missing in otis <laughs> so yeah you know what i'm saying and like but nonetheless it was just interesting to see how the industry responded back then to bands that seemed to be not losers and have a little bit together and have a little bit of a some kind of following even if it was just a regional following and how how you touched on earlier about all these I'm going to call, I'm going to say probably relatively low level managers and booking agents and, you know, whatever attorneys found you, they found us, but without ever really um, committing to anything and just keeping, okay, if you guys need something, we're here for you, man. Yeah. Yeah. They just want to keep uh, tabs on you. You know, it's like uh, some sports organizations can just put people on a list you know, saying, hey, we're negotiating with this person, so you can't, you know. Yeah, no, just... just... Be, that's why everyone searches for, for somebody in their teens, you know. That's the ideal model for, you know, it's like the Greg Brady thing, you know, like you fit the suit, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're you're too dumb to understand the contracts, and you don't understand how publishing works, and even if you did, it's not going to help you, you know. I mean... You know, this most recent uh, TV thing that I did with Roman Letters, I was extremely grateful and happy to do it. But at the same time, I didn't even read the contract because I know it's, you know, it's like you're going to get what you're going to get. 
And if you don't take the deal, then somebody else will. So do you want to be a part of it or not? You know, and because I don't have any stake in it, really, you know, I was just happy to do it for whatever they're willing to give, you know. Now, now did you um the stuff that you did you recall that stuff with Benny? The, the uh, no, stuff? no, that was with uh, Mike from Antler, Mike Quinn. Okay. So it was at the same studio because I was living over there on the property of Mad Oak. And uh, it was nice and convenient. And I had been in a band with Mike. And I honestly chose him for his, you know, kind disposition. You know, I wanted to somebody that I knew well enough that, you know, they'd be patient with me and just kind of put up with my shit. And then Andrew Schneider, who you, of course, know from Slughog and Barbaro and all of his recording uh, genius, he picked it up from there and mixed it and mastered it at his place out in uh, upstate New York. Oh, that's right. He lives upstate New York now. Well, he's kind of uh, both. Uh, the studio itself is is in upstate, but I think he's in Brooklyn some of the time and he's upstate some of the time. Yeah, I ran into his wife at um, this uh, Eugene Robinson uh, thing a couple of years ago, and she was telling me about where they live. And it's not too far from where I grew up, actually. Yeah, it's beautiful up there. I mean, we used to, you know, when we were driving through, we would stop by at your parents' place or yeah. my mom's place in New Jersey and get a home-cooked meal, you know. I always tell the people the story of, like, your mom was like that scene in Goodfellas like we show up at one, two in the morning and she'd pull out all these like trays of baked pasta and stuff and cook it. Up. It's like, Oh, you don't have to do this. She's like, no, no, no. And, but yeah, it was great. You know? Yeah. My parents have been host to uh, a lot of uh, scumbags, like sleeping on the floor on the couch and everything in their, in their house over the years. That's for sure. Absolutely. I think what we went to my grandmother's place in Nashville we got pulled over by the police on the way there because they're like, what the hell are you doing in the area? Oh, I remember uh, that. Yeah. Kev, Kev was like, I think I'm going to cry because like, you know, my grandma's got like a whole spread of food for everybody. And, you know, you're living pretty lean. I mean, there was, you know, people are always like, oh, you guys were so thin then. And it's like, yeah, we couldn't afford to eat, you know, <laughs> like we would do like a whole day you know, with nothing and then play a show and then get a few bucks, fill up the gas tank and then eat one meal at like 2 a.m. or whatever. And then that, that would hold you through the next day, you know. Probably like the 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 the, the, the most large living we did was on, well, on the European tour, but in the States, the dates with the Ramones, because uh, there I remember, I forgot what, maybe Norfolk, Virginia, we played with them. And uh, that was when they couldn't escape us because the backstage area was like just this <laughs> one big room. So yeah. no, everyone had to kind of deal with each other and be in the same room with the opening yeah. band, you know. And their manager, the tour manager was like, you know, you guys, if you want to eat that food over there, you know, we, we were going to throw it out. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, we were going to throw it out anyway. But if you guys. Yeah, leftovers. It, yeah, take it. So it was like, so we like totally feasted on like whatever catering they had that day. Yeah, Joey sat down. We've got that photo. Joey sat down and actually talked with us that day, which was really nice. But yeah, CJ, really, CJ was great. I've been trying yeah. to connect with him on uh, Instagram just to say hello, but I don't know if he accepts messages. But um, he would watch from the side of the stage. He was really supportive. He's like, hey, yeah, the, guys, the guys are asking if you're going to be the next Buzzpin. 
the buzz ben <laughs> band because that was like big on mtv at the time or whatever oh yeah i don't think we're gonna be a buzz band ben but no <laughs> cj and marky were the two guys that actually i remember marky would watch us too play as well and marky was like one of the guys who would talk to us and everything you know yeah, Johnny, I said hello to, and he just stared at me until I stopped looking at him. It was well, uh, you know, Johnny Ramon. <laughs> Johnny Ramon was known as being an asshole to a lot of people. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I mean Joey asked to use our room in uh, New York. I don't know if you remember that. He's like, "Can I use your room?" He just wanted his own space away from uh, those guys. Yeah, but, I remember you know, our dressing room ended up just being the hallway, like outside well, of. There was a small room in it. I don't know if you remember this. This is like classic us because we never expected anything or had high expectations about what we deserve. So we never put in a rider with anyone for any food or drink. So we show up into our room and there's one of those like metal, you know, tubs that's supposed to be full of ice and drinks. And it just has one spray can floating in water from like the night before or whatever. And maybe like a bag of ruffles. And I was like, Hey, we're living the high life now, you know, but not for nothing. Our the, the premiere should have been like, we need a rider from you guys. So you guys don't starve when you're out there on tour. You and know, again, they were just, you know, they, they were booking you two and Van Halen and a bunch of other big bands. So they didn't <laughs> give a, a shit about us. Like that New York show. We're like, Oh, is the big guy going to show up? Like, I don't know if you remember this, but we had that meeting with the top guy and he's like a legendary guy in the business. I can't remember his name. And he was telling us all these stories about the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and all the things that he's booked over his career. And he has this like a uh, cleaning woman come in and empty his ashtray in the middle of the meeting. He's just smoking cigars. And I'm like, is that a power move where like he pushes a button and it's like in the middle of the meeting. So he seems important. Somebody comes in and takes the ashtray and just dumps it into the trash can that's right next to him. I was like, wow, that's wild. Yeah, that's pretty surreal uh, to think about. <laughs> like that that's I do remember that, you know, that thing. And that was that was the day of the show with the Ramones in New York. I remember we were there. Yeah. We went to their yeah. office and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I'm like, do you think he's gonna come? And she's like, probably not. And I'm like, Yeah, I, I doubt <laughs> it too, man. I don't think he'd show up to support the Ramones, let alone us, you know. Oh yeah, and the Ramones were they were they were booked by Premiere. That's yeah, how that's how we got together. connected to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty wild, man. And then, and then, just like it was kind of like a trip watching, like being in New York and playing with the Ramones too, which was like, you know, I remember being like a little kid. They were like the, the Ramones for me personally were the first like punk band I ever listened to. And well, they were one of the first punk bands, you know. Yeah, but they I mean, were, you know, like they were heavily influenced by the Clash, by their own account of it, but you know watching the uh, rock and roll high school like the movie and all that stuff like i was i was down you know yeah so like years later to be actually sharing the stage with those guys was pretty crazy and so once again just about johnny i actually had a conversation with him on that tour at, at the new york show oh yeah because it's one of those deals like i said you know unlike other cities even even in nice venues like that the backstages at new york clubs like big venues like that it's also small you don't have it's not like you're in like, uh, you know, a, a different market where the backstages are nicer. The New York ones are always 
cramped and whatever. So Johnny couldn't get away from anybody. He was there. I talked to him briefly and he, I wouldn't say we had a conversation, but he like talked like at me for like maybe eight minutes <laughs> yeah, with like he, no eye contact or anything like that. He was, a, he was a weird dude. Marky was a weird guy too. I don't know if you remember this story, but Ethan had stowed away with us on that trip. And, oh, right. Uh, he walks up. He's like, I need to get Marky's autograph and he's drunk, you know, and, and uh, he comes up. He's got one square of toilet paper and he hands it to him with a pen. <laughs> and like, you know, you can't write on toilet paper. So Marky's like trying to do the right thing and give this kid an autograph. And I was just like, oh, wow, I can't believe this is happening right now. Like, we shouldn't have brought this guy back. <laughs> Rest in peace. You know, he, rest in peace, Ethan, man. That that was like a hard one to swallow, man. When he absolutely. Passed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at that point, I hadn't seen him in years, actually. You know what I mean? I ran into him. I had a thing before I moved to Switzerland. I had this dinner in Brookline, and I ended up at the bar that he was bartending and uh, had a nice conversation with him. So I'm kind of happy. That was like in 2011. So I'm, I'm happy that we made that connection. Yeah, it's it's real. It was real. His passing came at a in a period in my life where a lot of people were, were passing away, and uh, yeah. a lot of people I was really close to died like around the time I heard about his his passing, and it was just once just another brick of like a whole load that I was carrying on my shoulders around that for like the last couple of years. So yeah, it was just pretty brutal, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I've been pretty lucky. I mean, part of it is, you know, I don't get extremely close to anybody, so it doesn't, uh, yeah, that helps cushion the blow a little bit. But, uh, you know, no matter how cold-hearted I can be, you know, it's always tough, you know, when I get that news, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because, like, I was, um, you know, there's the inside of the first Otis record. I, there's yeah. the there's the photograph of Ethan in there holding a gun to my head. Basically. Yeah. I remember like, being in the kitchen for that. Yeah. And I was like, damn, man, that dude's like that young guy is like gone now. You know, it's, it's pretty oh, intense. Yeah. yeah. He was just a kid, man. He was just a kid too soon, but uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's weird. You know, those big experiences ending end up not being as big as you thought they were going to be. Like we played Summerfest. And that's like, you know, the biggest festival in the U.S. It's like 11 days, you know, tons of big bands in that year. There was like Pearl Jam and Hootie and the Blowfish and like the height of that kind of mid 90s, you know, popular bands were playing. And we were opening for Goo Goo Dolls, but yeah. we played like at, I don't know, 1 p.m. or something. Yeah. And nobody's there. And all like PS, you need to move out of the dressing room like immediately, so you can't even be backstage for like the bands in the middle of the the day, let alone the end of the day when the Goo Goo Dolls are there. So it's like I'm part of it, like I'm listed as part of this, but I'm not really part of it. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, totally, man. You know, it's like playing festivals like that. It's always kind of like a trip, but it's more of like it's a line item on your in your bio or something you know what i mean it's like when you're 
you're trying to like do bigger things they list that and then oh okay what festivals you play oh Summerfest, we played this we played that. <laughs> it's like yeah we did but we you know we were there like we performed a set <laughs> at we were that physically event. there <laughs> yeah we, we performed yes but whether or not we were part of that it's debatable you know we met that band die cheerleader um at that show and we already had a tour booked with them i don't That's think right. we said more than a word with them at all like we went we snuck into the filter show like we talked our way into backstage for the filter show yes that they were opening and we're like oh we're opening for this band next month they're like i don't understand what you're talking about but just go ahead you know <laughs> And, there was uh, that one dude though there was that one guy that was in filter that was friends with uh the guys i ended yeah. up yeah that he, guy he like, showed up that frank the bass player showed up in cleveland because they're from that area yes yeah he showed up at the grog shop right yeah that guy ended up i, I ended up getting to know that guy because he was friends with the dudes in that band keel hall that um anodyne would play with and tombs would also play with quite a bit and he was part of that cleveland circle of people you know there's oh, all nice. those bands from cleveland and um yeah i i got that guy would be like a recurring character over the last two, 20 years or so you know no shit yeah. yeah it was weird i was he was all excited that i recognized him but i was like well i just saw you at Summerfest and you know, I know that you have a connection with this band, blah, blah, blah. So it's not like, you know, I picked you out of a lineup, but he was all, I'm like, hey, you're in Filter. He's like, I am, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but one of, you know, one like, of the, the best uh, power moves too, like one of the funnier moves was our uh, connection with uh, Letters to Cleo. Oh, that was the best. Yeah. <laughs> They were we like, would just stalk them like wherever they were like we were in minneapolis and we just show up and like they give us food and stuff yeah. to get rid of us you know that, that was the move though because like i remember on several occasions on the, they would be on tour at the same time we were on tour but they would play they would be playing these like you know like first avenue venues where it's like you know we were in 7th street entry yeah yeah we would be in the 7th street entry they would be playing the room that holds like 1500 people and yeah. we would be in the room that holds 200 people with actually 15 people there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then Michael it was like. Epstein is like, uh, hey, there's a guy with a Sam Black Church uh, shirt. And then <laughs> uh, Gay's like, that's just one of the Otis guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, they would invite us backstage. and it, the, Right away, I would, I would like just invade the food area. You know what I mean? Oh, and yeah. Take, take stuff you know put it in my pocket you know bread and things like that and for later you know what i mean dude she gave me a whole half gallon of orange juice one time you know yeah. like whatever we could get you know but we did <laughs> play that uh july 4th show with them in washington dc which was pretty cool like there weren't oh, yeah. a ton of people there but it was the outdoor thing and um you know they were nice. There was like a few other bit like Parade of Losers and some other bands were on that bill. But uh, we showed up so early. This guy came. We're there like four in the morning or whatever, like just in the field. And uh, this guy's like, all right, I'm going to need you to. He thought we were part of the crew putting the stage together. And it's like, I'm not doing anything. I'm playing. He's like, what the fuck are you doing here already? You know, <laughs> it's like, we don't plan our tours well. I don't know what to tell you. 
<laughs> yeah, it was like we would just go to the venues. We had nowhere else to go, man. It was like it was funny. Like you know, we would do. I I'm sure I'm not sure if we played like the night before or something, but it was like we did. Well, we played the night before, and we were like, we don't want to unload the van. We're gonna be <laughs> heading down there anyway, so let's just leave from the previous night's gig in Boston and just go. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That, that's like, uh, yeah. It was like wow, out of laziness for not unloading the van. Instead of unloading the van and sleeping wherever we lived, we drove like seven hours or something like that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like Dakota. Well, the, the one show that's on uh, on YouTube, the Kyber Pass show, which is actually a really good show if if you check it out. At the end of it, p- people are like, play one more. And we're like, no, nope, got to drive to Maine. And they're like, Maine? Like, you're not even going <laughs> to spend, spend the night in Philadelphia. It's like, nope, we're going to immediately drive to Maine and get there whenever we get there, regardless of what time the show is. You know? And go sit outside the club at like 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, that night, probably. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it just shows you how much we had going on. Like we put we put everything into it, you know. Yeah, there really wasn't much going on in my life, really, at the time of doing that that band, man. Because it's like, if I if I remember correctly, speaking of Michael, well, I'm not going to name any names, but attorneys. There was that sweetheart publishing deal that we got, which allowed us to kind of live for like a few months or whatever, you know. Yeah, I don't know if it was as much of a sweetheart deal. Like, oftentimes those things were like, you know, the real money is going to be in, like, the next record or another record down. And we never ended up, like, making those records, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I was being uh, ironic by saying sweetheart deal because it was basically, like, you know, to, to make a long story short, it's like, you give us everything. And we give you like 20 bucks. That was kind of like <laughs> really what it came. But we were so like, we were really at the point where, because that was the second time that that offer had come to us. The first time we were like, fuck this, man. This is like, yeah. this isn't going to work. You know, we're going to, we're going to make, we're going to sell a million albums, man. Like on our next record. So, so let's, you know, let's hold off and see if something better comes along. But then a year later, you know, we're all like destitute and it's just like, huh, can we, uh, yeah, but you- but you never know what's going on behind the scenes because like I'd be in, in the office and like, Hey, what's this? And it's like, Oh, that's a snowboard ski video that you guys are in, or this is a, from a video game compilation. And I'm like, I don't remember getting any money for this or like, you know, anybody mentioning it. So like, you know, shit would just get licensed to different things and it would never equate to anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah, such a fucking weird world, man. You know what I mean? When, when especially back then, because like I, once again, it's like now now things are way different. I mean, it's like you know any anyone doing like any kind of like real like business in the world of music or films or video games are like already known players in that world. You know what I mean? Yeah. And back then, it's like you could just be like a bunch of guys in a band, and like maybe something opportunity like that would come, and that would be really cool. But like. None of us knew what the hell we were doing. We didn't know what was available, like what opportunities there were, what opportunities didn't exist for us. You know, we all had our own ideas about like what the future could possibly be and stuff like that, you know? Well, everybody seemed to be in the business somehow. So like in that era, like you were putting out a zine, you were a publicist, you were a photographer, you know, you were a manager, you had your own label, you know, 
it seemed like everybody was doing something related to the music business and if you know maybe they had a record store job you know everybody was working at you know Newberry or Tower and and stuff like that but you know I was just aspiring you know stupidly to be like these people where they had like a quote-unquote full-time job in music but you know they were just you know scraping by and barely holding it together you know it was more yeah. like the the appearance that you know they worked in the industry for the most part and even if you did like that you know that jaded salinger's record i did with elgin james uh shred from bcn put that out and at the time he was the rep for columbia and and we're like so what do the people at columbia think and he's like well i don't really like to you know, use my connections. It's like, that's specifically what we're doing here, right? Like, yeah. that's why we're talking to you in the first place is is the connection. So let's try and use them. But, you know, everybody had their different idea of how to run their business, I guess. Is Shred still active at all doing anything with music? I don't know. I'm not good. I left Facebook years ago and, uh, a lot of the people that like him, I kind of lost track of when I left Facebook. So I didn't, you know, it's funny, like, you know, this, we're recording this, like, uh, you know, basically the day after the Begotten Sons thing went up. And I had no idea that you even on Instagram, although I would have tagged you in that post. No, that's all right. I try and keep a low profile. I don't put my actual name on there. You know, I promote my art very little, you know, it's just kind of. I have a very much like a take it or leave it kind of approach to anything I'm doing. You know, I'm happy to to sink my money into things because, you know, whether it's art or music or whatever, you have a vision like, hey, this thing needs to be produced that I have in my mind. And if you have the wherewithal, you know, you might as well put your energy into doing it. And again, like, we said if you have you know kind of an ulterior motive for it it's probably going to affect the output you know like i don't make like a thousand dollar piece of art you know thinking i'm going to sell it for more because i know i'm not going to but it exists the, nonetheless you know one of the things that i learned about from you when i stayed at your house that night after we recorded the drums was yeah, i had yeah. no idea you did art to be honest well, that came about in, in Switzerland because I had uh, stepped away from music for so long that I kind of had like a creative midlife crisis, you know. So ultimately, you'll find your way in, into doing whatever it is, right? You know, so people are like, oh, I'd love to paint. And it's like, well, step one is do it. You know what I mean? So if you'd really love to do it, then just do it. And if you're focused on the outcome or whether it looks like the thing that you're trying to make, you know, you're never going to get anywhere. Like, like, how do you make one good painting, make 200 shitty paintings, you know, and it's kind of the same thing with music or, or whatever else, you know. Also, like, I don't know if you're ready to talk about it now, but you, you've been talking to me about a book that you've been writing or I don't know if you're completed it's it, written yeah and i imagine um i imagine you probably would tell me like when that's going to be published or anything like that it's you know i for it's the same type of thing you know for a while i was chasing you know opportunities and trying to get different people to read it and you know people as high up as like you know the william morris endeavor people you know got it but you never know what 
what people actually read, how much of it, you know, how much they give a shit. So, and even if they do, what does it mean, you know, in the end, right? So, I don't know. It's I put a lot of time into it, and it's, you know, it's pretty sizable, but it's not something that, you know, I won't. I really want to share from the perspective of me, you know, it's kind of anonymous and, uh, you know, I've even talked to people about ghost writing it for me. So I don't know. We'll see, we'll see what happens with that. It's kind of, you know, not that I have it in the bank, but like it's done. I wanted to do it and I did it. You know what I mean? And that's kind of more the point than anything, right. Is how, and I know you're, goal oriented so you know you have the goal you achieve the goal and then you have like a few moments of you know whatever it is you know not adulation but you know maybe a self-satisfaction and then immediately you need to produce something else to yeah. kind of recreate that feeling and and keep the creative uh flow going in your life yeah definitely I, man it you know, that, that's why I'm happy to get this Begotten Sons thing out, too, because, like, you know, it took a while to get it. I mean, I mean actually, it didn't take a while. It was, like, very quickly the whole thing came together and the master and all that. So, but, yeah, it's, like, always kind of chasing the dragon, you know what I mean, with this stuff. But it came quickly because of the preparedness, right? So you had done all of the things in your life and built up your engineering capabilities and your you know home studio setup and so it's you know it's kind of like when people are like hey i need you to do this creative thing for me but you did it so fast why am i paying you so much money and it's like you're paying me so much money because of all the time that i put into it to be able to do it that fast right yeah so you've achieved you know, X number of, of studio sessions under your belt. And that's what that, you know, your talent is what makes it come easy. I mean, I was really blown away by it. You know, the, the early demos were, were great, but the final product, you know, I listened to it on headphones, uh, you know, the last few days and, and prep for this and it, I'm really blown away by it, you know? Yeah. I hadn't listened to it for a while. You know, because like you know how it is. It's like I, I I'm like disgusted by anything that I do. Like immediately after I listen, after I'm done with it, you know, like I can't. Like I'll, I'll listen to it. Like when we get the 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 mixes done, I'll be like, all right, good. I, I can't I can't listen to this anymore. And then when Benny sent over the masters, I actually, you know, obviously I had to listen to it again. You know, and you kind of there's a lot of distance between when we recorded the, the you know finished the session and the mixes. And then the master was like a couple months later. So I'd kind of lost track of what the material material was all about. And I was like, huh, yeah, it's actually pretty good. You know, I feel, pre feel pretty good about all this stuff. And, you know, once again, reviewing the masters, I had had I'd listened to it with just through monitors and then, you know, through a headset and with the headset on, I was like, oh, there's like a lot of cool details in here that I almost forgot we did, you know? Well, I was lucky enough to, you know, be even more external to it in that like I didn't really know how to play it or really know the material when I did it so yeah. I've kind of felt like a, a a witness or an audience member the whole time so I kind of listen to it as if I'm not involved which is the best 
you know, the best way from my perspective to, to really be honest with yourself about how good it is, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and, um, the funny thing about it was like, when we showed up at Mad Oak to do this drum session, you were like, not even sure if you're going to play drums anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, your, your whole thing was like, this might be the last time I play drums ever, you know? And I'm like, man, I hope not, you know? Well, I mean, it's just based on history. Like the the Roman letters sessions, I played drums in August of last year, right? Yeah. So that was the, you know, 822. So I hadn't played drums at all, let alone recording since 2011 and not even a, a lot even then. And I hadn't recorded since 2006. So you know, it was a long stretch of time between when I made the last Antler record and when I made Roman Letters and now The Begotten Son. So, you know, it kind of, I still kind of feel that way that it, it those things may be the last thing I do. But obviously, if you hit me up and say, hey, I've got X number of more songs, let's go in and do it, then I'd be happy to do it. And by the same token, if I come up with you know, another four or five songs for Roman letters, you know, I'll, I'll do that as well. And, you know, the beauty for either is that they're, you know, kind of scalable because it's not really a conventional band, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, that, that's, what's nice about it too. It's like, you know, cause you know, I mean, you know, with, with tombs, you know, there's expectations and there's like schedules and, shows and you know we got to deliver things on certain days and stuff like that and to have something that's purely a creative outlet you know that's like you just kind of throw it out there into the universe and it's like take it or leave it you know it's here here it is yeah it's like it makes it more fun and way more satisfying in some ways you know because it's like you can try stuff that i can try things that i you know have been wanting to try but i haven't had an opportunity to do that or it didn't feel appropriate in other settings to try those things, but there's like a brand new clean sheet of paper with literally no eyes on it. And people are, no one's, you know, really, Oh, this sounds cool, whatever. They're open to things or not open to things. And it doesn't even matter because it's primarily just for me and you. Yeah, no, that's the, the best thing. And those are the things that actually become, you know, the timeless, uh, you know, components of our, you know, our structure of art and music, etc. you know, and I very much like the kind of drop it and run and not really be around for it. I've done a lot of that with art, you know, you just abandon it and somebody picks it up and you're not there for when they pick it up. And I don't need to see their reaction or their interface with it. That really has nothing to do with me. Like I've already done my part, you know what I mean? And it's, it's the same same kind of thing with this yeah so um definitely let me know what's going on with if the book gets published or something i'd like to talk to you about all that stuff too man you know i will it's hard because i have a regular you know day job life and you know i can't really you know talk about a lot of this stuff in the book without fear of you know <laughs> losing jobs and and things of that nature but uh you know which is one of the reasons why i want to kind of put it out anonymously you know, I always promised myself I'd never do 
a podcast because I'm always too honest and I don't really, <laughs> I don't really give a shit and I provide too much information, but you know, this, I kind of have to keep a little close to the vest, you know? Right. on. Gotcha. Gotcha about that. No problem. But, uh, but yeah, dude, I'll, I'll see you uh, in a few weeks, man. I'll be up in Providence and we'll, we'll hang out. If, if you're I hope, that I hope to be there. I will make every effort to come to that show and, and film it. You know, it's a nice venue. It's right down the street from me and, uh, always happy to see you play because you know you always bring it and it's nice to be in the the audience and kind of get their perspective of it you know well thanks a lot man i appreciate you and um well i'll let you we'll stay in touch about that thing in providence man i appreciate you and and thanks for this and congratulations on the begotten sons i really uh am thankful to have been part of it and you know it came out really great right on man Take care. Have a good day. All right. Take care, man.